0: You're listening to KDRT-LP 95.7 here in Davis, California. You are listening to KDRT-LP 95.7 in Davis, California. My name is Lois Richter, and the show is called That's Life. Now, I don't know if you know my partner on that other show, the Davis Garden Show. His name's Don Shore. If you have listened to That's Life frequently, you may have heard of him before, because back in 2018, we did a three-part series on jazz, and that repeated in um, March 26th of 2020. So if you go to my show and look for March 26, you'll find all those three jazz shows right in a row there. And then in June of 2021, Don and I did a show where I asked him about his life. And so if you want to know more about Don Shore this is the one for you, June of 2021. And then recently, this July of this month 2023 Don and I talked about trees now this was part one our intention is to have multiple parts and eventually have a lot of stuff in here about trees but today is August 2023 and guess what I've got Don on the show again hello Don
1: we're here to talk about jazz wait no
0: Trees. Wait, no. Okay. <laughs> Dogs. No, wait, no. We're here to talk about whatever we want to talk about. This is going to be one of those free-ranging shows, sort of like free-ranging chickens.
1: So I believe the world needs more flowers, jazz, and trees, and my goal is to get more of those out there. And, you know, it needs um, inform- you don't need more information for jazz. You can just listen to shows. You really don't need that much more information for flowers, so it can be helpful. But trees, that's a really important decision. When you plant a tree, and, well, that's um,
0: because they live so long. I
1: and mean. They can, or sometimes they don't, and that's bad <laughs> because you <laughs> planted the wrong one, or you did something. Something went wrong. Well, so, just well, let me give you a, a real quick background. I'm on the board of Tree Davis, which is a local nonprofit organization that plants trees and encourages the public to become more familiar with them. That's a real short summary of our mission statement. Um, I've also been selling trees for a long time, uh 42 years, and I also plant a lot of trees because I live on a farm. And so one of the first things I did when I moved here 35 plus years ago was start planting trees because I figured I'd live here till I was an old guy and I'd plant trees then that I could see get old, which is a really cool thing to do. Not many people have that opportunity.
0: Well, w- one of the things that people sometimes are confused about is what's a tree and what's not a tree? Because we were just talking on our Davis Garden Show about olive trees, and olive trees can be pruned up into one lollipop looking like thing. But if you just if you just grew in the wild, they would have multiple stems.
1: Is it still a tree? That's a funny question because we're. I'm in, in the middle of a process that's a local process where a whole bunch of us are working together on a big database of trees, uh, recommended, not recommended, recommended for certain situations, not recommended for certain situations. Several people doing input onto this database. And I made a comment on several of them. I just put in the comment section, shrubby or shrub. And not that they're not a tree, but they're a shrub. And this prompted a very entertaining conversation. I've also had this conversation with one of my staff people years ago, who was a very literal minded person could not fathom that the same plant could be both a shrub and a tree. How can that be there? How can the great myrtle be both a shrub and a tree? How can an olive be both a shrub and a tree? So because we define those by how we predominantly use them. Mm-hmm. That's really the simple answer. A shrub usually is something with multiple trunks. A shrub is usually only up to a certain height. I've seen 20 feet used as a sort of an arbitrary guide that below that, multiple trunks, we call that a shrub. Above that, multiple trunks, it can be considered a tree. Usually, trees have a single or a small number of trunks, but not always. Many of our native trees have multiple trunks, like our box elders, for example. So it's really a matter of usage. There is no formal definition that says this woody plant is a shrub and this woody plant is a tree. But in general, when we're talking about something that's shorter than about 20 feet and has a bunch of of shoots that we call trunks that's usually a shrub single trunk or a couple trunks higher than 20 feet that's usually something we call a tree and there are many exceptions to both of those generalizations
0: so we have some really short trees that are 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 short by their nature rather than being dwarfed or pruned or anything that that way they're just a small tree
1: Japanese maple is a classic example, rarely more than 15 or 20 feet, but usually with a single trunk, not uncommonly with two or three trunks, but usually with an actual trunk you can see, and it's used like a tree. So really the definition comes from how we predominantly use them. That's going
0: to be tough, Don. (laughs) I think we need to broaden our topic and talk about trees and shrubs.
1: We we will. Uh, with with respect to the database, for example, those are going to stay on there or just make the comment that they're generally multiple trunks. And this is an important uh, maintenance issue. Let's say someone's recommending trees for a parking lot and they have to be very low irrigation and a bunch of other criteria. And we say, yeah, I've got a great one for that. I lost my congestum.
0: Well, that uh, makes a great hedge.
1: <laughs> that's a shrub. That's usually used as a shrub. So yeah, it's usually used as a shrub. It also is trained as a tree by one grower that I buy them from who stakes them up like a great myrtle and lollipops them, top, you know, tops them off. And if you do nothing to a Zylosma and plant it in your yard and wait 20 years, it'll be as big as, it'll be bigger than your Japanese maple. So oh, yeah. it's, it certainly fits in that category. And I don't want people to think, oh, I can't use that as a tree because the nursery guy said it was a shrub. Again, it's usage more than anything. There are small trees and there are big shrubs and there's a lot of overlap. And there are some plants that can be either, depending on how you train them or don't train them. Many of the plants that we think of as trees would not naturally have a single trunk and olives, crepe myrtles are very good examples. Mm -hmm.
0: So you know my house, you know that I have had a Zarlasma hedge around the back and one side, uh, the west side, and uh you know it's been a wonderful hedge and years ago i would take the back one and i would have somebody come in and cut it down to a certain height depending upon how shall i put that I measured where the sun was going to be in the wintertime, because in the wintertime, the sun is lower in the sky than it is in the summertime. And so I have windows on the back side of my house facing south. And you'd think, oh, great. In the wintertime, I'll get all this sunshine. Well, Zavasma is leafy all year round. So it, If the sun is down there and the xylasma is too tall, I don't get any sun in my house at all in the wintertime. So I used to go out and have it uh, topped. Mm -hmm. You notice I keep saying used to (laughs) (laughs) because I haven't climbed ladders in a few years. Mm -hmm. I haven't been using the giant mechanical devices that I used to when I was younger. And so, well, the xylasma hedge has gotten tall
1: (laughs) you're you're that last one have turned into trees that's fine that's absolutely fine
0: what really happened is that when it was a hedge and i kept it down and when i say down it means like uh 16 feet or so that's that's where i was trying to keep it to keep the sun to come in um but All of the underneath branches, the little twigs and everything, they've got no sun, so they they turned brittle, and oh, the birds loved it in there. Well, as it's gotten taller, a lot of that has just fallen out. And so now what I'm left with is I can see my... my fence between my, heart, my house and the neighbor's house, which I could never do before. And then I've got a couple of, of, of trunks coming up from there. And then this great big xylasma up tall, hanging down, like weeping. And it's just, it's so different. And it's the same plant.
1: It's there just- are several several plants that are in this category that people use uh, both ways, and in some nurseries you'll find some of these trained in two or three different manners. A really good example is Arbutus Marina, which looks like madrone. It's an absolutely beautiful tree. It looks like our native madrone, but we can actually grow it here, unlike our native madrone, which always dies. So, Arbutus Marina, the tree that they're all being propagated from, was originally a thirty to forty foot specimen down in the San Francisco Bay Area Marina District of San. Francisco. However, they come from one grower pruned like a bush, looks like a shrub, looks like any other five or 15 gallon shrub in the nursery yard. And that same grower will stake it up like a tree or he'll grow it like a tree, but leave the lower branches, which is my favorite of his versions, multi-trunk tree. He calls that a column, interestingly. So it's the same plant being trained in a different way and being sold to you in your retail nursery in a different way, perhaps for a different use. If you stick those in the ground and do nothing, and look at them 20 years later, they'll all look pretty much the same. They'll all be pretty much the same size. But you can keep that shrubby one shorter if you wish to by pruning, as you did with your xylosma for years. Or you can train them up like a beautiful tree to be a canopy over the stuff below, as you have done, I guess, now with your xylosma. Intentionally, yeah. <laughs> well, and Another one in that category, pineapple guava, the feijoa, which is a lovely shrub that can become big enough. I'm looking out the window at one that's about 15 by 15 with three main trunks because I let it do that. I decided to make it more tree-like because I wanted to garden under it. If I left it its normal way, there wouldn't be any space under it for me to garden. And there are others. The bay laurel is a good example of something which can certainly get big enough to be considered a tree by almost any definition. Bay laurel, Loris nobilis, not our native bay, but the Mediterranean or Grecian bay laurel. There's one on Plum Lane in Davis that was planted in the 1940s that is at least 50 feet tall, at least 50 feet tall, 10 to 15 foot spread, massive plant, biggest I've ever seen of Loris nobilis. I have Loris nobilis near a shack that I'm trying to screen off on my son's side of the property, and I just print them 12 feet. I've been keeping them that way for seven or eight years, and I'll probably keep doing that for a while. So I'm growing it like a shrub, but the natural growth habit is tall enough that we would probably call it a tree, even though it always suckers from the base and this is an important thing to know about shrubs being used as trees there will be ongoing maintenance because they're going to very likely in most cases keep trying to sprout up like a shrub and you'll have to keep cutting those lower suckers off if you want to have it look like a tree doesn't hurt the plant your choice it's your tree do whatever you want Prune off the lower branches train it up tree like top it down those are all perfectly good options but it's the same plant just being grown and used in a different manner
0: well, when you're talking about suckering, now, I have a plum tree. I've always thought a plum tree was just a tree, but it keeps getting things coming up from the root. It, well, that's
1: different. Yeah, root suckers are a different issue.
0: So yeah. what, what is what is with that? If I let those grow, would it be the same... Thing or is no. this a graft
1: problem? It's grafted. Yes, plums, ornamental plums that are grown for the flowers and sometimes for the purplish, burgundy red leaves. The purple leaf plum, the flowering plums, Prunus bliriana, In the case of the flowering plum, Prunus croucher vesuvius, or some of the other purple leaf plums, just like a fruit tree, and they're actually produced typically by the same kind of growers as fruit trees. They're grafted, so mm-hmm. the top is what you planted intentionally, and the rootstock is something else. And so the roots suckers that come up a few feet away coming up from the roots are going to look different. In the case of the purple leaf plum, they'll have green leaves. Uh, there other, other than that, it's still a plum of some sort, probably the same species, but it's not the same plant. And in that case, and in the case of others where they're grafted, rootstock should be removed or else in many cases, it's vigorous enough to overtake the tree. And you've also identified a problem with plums, which is that they sucker a lot. And so that becomes an ongoing maintenance issue with them <laughs> as well.
0: So when I take off a, a root sucker, um, do I just cut it down an inch above the ground or do I have to get underground to cut it down? Does it matter? I mean, because sometimes people have, have cut these off. And, and so there's this big knobby, n- knobbing bunch of cut places there.
1: Yeah that's the nature of that plant. And, uh, you know, cut it where you can for aesthetic reasons. It's going to re-sprout. You'll just have to keep after it. For years, there were products on the market you could spray, you could cut and spray with a product called Sucker Stopper. That might still be out there, but the last time I sold it, it was like 50 bucks a bottle. So there wasn't a whole lot of demand for it. Your best bet is to just take a sharp spade or a nice shovel and cut straight down, cut it out if you can, take off the piece of root that it's attached to if you possibly can. That will slow down the process of resprouting, but it won't eliminate it. So there are many trees that are known for suckering, and that could be an issue. That could be actually a major issue with some tree species, and I wouldn't recommend them in residential settings. It's not a huge issue with the plums, you know, more than just you have to get out there and do some work. But with our native stream willow, for example, let me give you an example. Our native Salix gudingii, which would be native here Davis-Dixon area. You'll still see it in drainage sloughs. I planted one on my property because I love these kinds of things and I live on a farm. Remember, folks, I have acreage. I put it on a drip system with a couple of emitters on that plant. And then knowing it wanted to spread and knowing where I had it, I wanted it to spread. I ran more emitters down that same drip line, 10 feet in either direction, 20 feet total emitterized tubing for it. And in the first summer, it spread all the way down to that irrigated area. Uh-huh. So I now have a hedge of our native willow. I'm thrilled. This is great. It's exactly what I want. It's going to fill a bioswale, wildlife habitat. Wonderful. Not for your backyard. <laughs> this yeah. is not something you want. I guarantee it will form a suckering thicket. So be aware of that with some species. It can actually be a, a negative attribute with respect to residential properties.
0: Again, where you plant the plant is location is everything. Location yes. is everything.
1: Right tree, right place is the is the uh, the slogan of uh, one particular marketing program. Right tree in the right place makes all the difference because you put the wrong tree in, you get 20, 25, 30 years into the growth of that tree. That's a lot of resources that went into that. And then it's a problem and it ends up getting taken out. So this gets to a really core principle that we hammer home every time we're giving Tree Davis talks. When I'm talking to people at my nursery, giving presentations, choose the right tree for your situation. Every spot has criteria some cases they matter more than others. Uh, you know, not suckering I think would be a pretty important characteristic uh, for a tree in a backyard, how big it gets, does it have aggressive roots and so on. That's that's just like a whole the whole point of the conversation is to get the right tree for the particular situation.
0: I think one thing that people tend to forget when they're planting flowers or trees or anything is that what you're planting is a little tiny thing. <laughs> yes. How big is it? does it want to be so if you plant oh i don't know a lilac bush right Mm -hmm. all right there's a lilac bush i'm gonna plant that and you put it two feet away from something else well a lilac bush is going to get big enough that whatever it else it was two feet away is going to get covered up by the lilac bush
1: it could. My lilacs are about 10 to 12 feet tall. Uh, this is really, really crucial. I mean, if you're, if you're a giant perennial gets too big, well, big deal. Okay. But if your tree gets too big or spreads too much or has roots that are known for being surface rooting, then you have a tree that becomes a nuisance or even worse, a liability and ends up getting taken out. And um, we run into this all the time. Assumptions that were made 20, 40, 50, 60 years ago about appropriate trees sometimes have turned out to be wrong. The whole history of urban forestry is learning from the past mistakes in urban forestry. (laughs) Define
0: define urban forestry, would you?
1: We use the term urban forest to refer to the whole collection of woody plants, trees and shrubs, but predominantly the trees and the understory plants and the understory organisms, which includes the bipeds uh, that all live together in one ecosystem. And we do, I know it sounded, the first time I heard urban forest, I thought that sounds terribly pretentious, but it really is an accurate description of what we have. City davis for example thirty-five, forty thousand trees that are managed by the city or that are city street trees in front of your home that's our urban forest and it includes the soil underneath the soil the health of the soil the shrubs nearby the ground covers the people the animals and such that live in and with those trees and of course with urban forests your basic most important issue is the impacts between humans and trees, the, you know, the way we live together uh, in a regular forest, you know, your normal forest, it's the other animals that are more important in many cases than the humans, but in an urban forest, it's everything we're doing underneath those trees that matters. So we are part of the urban forest. And wherever you live in a town, if you live in a town that has a street tree program or anything like that, you're part of the process. Some people don't really know that or or understand how they can help or what they can do, unfortunately, to hurt. Some cases there are rules and regulations, but you are part of the urban forest. You are, in fact, probably the most notable pest in the urban forest.
0: (laughs) Well, even if you're not in a place like Davis that has an active street tree program, has these volunteer organizations working on the urban forest, even if you live in, oh, I don't know, Backwoods, Michigan, where everybody's got their own plot of land and they're responsible for what they're growing and not a whole lot of coordination, (laughs) you're still part of the forest, whether it's urban or rural or forest or not forest.
1: So- In a lot of of those places, what matters is what you can take out and can't take out. You know, Places where it rains a lot, 40 inches or more of rainfall a year is what it takes to sustain an actual forest. And there may be rules wherever you're listening about trees you can or cannot remove. Here in California, there frequently are rules about oaks, for example, because they're considered threatened by development. So there are rules about whether or not you can take out an oak tree, even on your own property, with or without a permit. You should inquire locally, especially if you're in a new subdivision, because... One of the worst things we can do to existing stands of native oaks is build houses around them and change the irrigation pattern, almost sure to kill them in most cases. That's just one example of something really simple that can affect the whole urban forest is the way development occurs in the way people then landscape their properties. So wherever you're listening, 40 inches, 50 inches of rain a year or 15 to 20 inches of rain a year, it's going to determine the species that are successful. There there may be rules about what you can do and what you can't do. But more to the point, there's good guidelines about what you should do or should not do.
0: How much rain do we get?
1: We average about 20 inches of rainfall a year here. Okay. and that varies that varies down to as little as six inches one year. And 42 inches one year that I remember. Okay. So we we go back and forth between drought and flood. And uh, that's true of many places in California, obviously. So that's well, a big factor right there. And how to choose a tree is the natural rainfall pattern and the likely irrigation pattern
0: so we live in davis you and i well you live I near know. davis i live in a farm. Davis. yeah <laughs> yep. uh, and it it rains in the winter and it's dry in the summer and that's just the way things are
1: classic but mediterranean rainfall normal, pattern yeah. yeah
0: yeah in our normal i can't say normal in our original i can't even say original
1: average average
0: no historic
1: average. in average. our
0: historical plant communities ah. we had we did not have lots of trees. This was not a forest. This was, this was, there were oaks, there were grass, this was, you know, is it called a savanna? Is that the right term?
1: We're in the valley grassland plant community and depends on where you are. Some of those, um, someone walking through here three, four hundred years ago, if they had gone over by Winters or the Dixon Ridge or that side, they'd be walking through lovely, rich grasslands. Turned out to be great, very fertile farm fields. If they were closer to the streams and rivers, it was more likely to be a tule marsh. It was a lot tougher going. There are some tree species native, but you wouldn't walk through a canopy of trees in most cases, except right near the riparian zones where the the two creeks that go through the area go. And you would have seen a valley oak every mile or so. And uh, I am told, having read old histories, when people arrived in Sacramento, uh, when Sacramento was being built at the confluence of the Sacramento and the American rivers, just 15, 20 miles from us, massive old sycamores, massive old cottonwoods, massive old native walnuts, I mean, with three, four foot diameter trunks and bigger, huge trees, all gone, Not, not didn't take long for them to all be killed by people camping under them and having fires and changing the direction of the river and all that kind of thing. Those and cutting been the them three,
0: down to build
1: with. Yeah, and those would have been the three dominant species, which we still see a lot of around here, by the way. Those were, um, as I mentioned, uh, sycamore, the western sycamore. Mostly we see the non-native sycamore, but or plain tree, but the western sycamore still here. Native cottonwood, Fremont cottonwood, not a lot of those around. I got one. I can tell you why there aren't a lot of them around. <laughs> and the Northern California black walnut, which is a beautiful tree for this area, but not a great backyard tree. That is the black walnut it was lining Russell Boulevard, which was U.S. 40. As you go west towards winters or east towards Davis from winters, those were Northern California black walnuts. They're still around as well. So those three are the major large tree species that you would have encountered here and which are here, still here to varying degrees.
0: And those would be the ones that were near the river, but away from the river, there would be an occasional oak.
1: Yeah, and even those are typically in areas where there was added moisture underground. So they don't call them riparian, but they need some source of moisture. Our valley oak, our majestic valley oak, many of which are still here in the, in the Arboretum, for example, and in here and there, estimated to be anywhere from two to 400 years old. And uh, so those go way back. And you would not have walked through a lot of shade if you were coming through the valley 400 years ago. It would have been a long walk through grasslands.
0: Given that that is the case the trees that we want to plant in our yards are not the trees that were here because we want to have a yard that is cool and green mm-hmm. and shady.
1: Those are nice trees. Days. if you have, They're nice trees if you have room for them. A lot of people of those, the only one that people really push for uh, is the valley oak, which is Quercus lobata a wonderful tree. I have them on my farm and in each case too, they came up in a place where I looked and thought you can have a 60 foot diameter circle all to yourself as with respect to trees and things, you know, that I'm not, not, I have stuff under them, but basically each tree is given a 60 foot diameter area. Um, that's your whole backyard typical residential setting. And you would be planting, I would tell people when you're thinking about a valley oak, remember you're planting a tree that lives readily for a 100 years plus and can still be there three or 400 years later if you've planned for that. But if the place you're going to put it is going to shade someone's solar panels or shade someone's entire backyard or really affect your neighbors, I don't think it's going to go that long because 30 or 40 years down the road, someone's going to want to take that tree out. And that's really a shame when that happens. It's just too big. The native trees that are suitable here are typically too big for residential settings. Great choices. Parks, green belts, every neighborhood that's come together with a neighborhood association. If you can find one common area where you can plant one valley oak, that would be wonderful because that will restore them and we'll have more of them in the area. But it's not the kind of tree I typically recommend for a backyard if you want to have any other kind of a garden there in the long run.
0: What grows on a valley oak now i know there are various galls that oh, are on the on the leaves and on the twigs and stuff like that but it, it being a native plant it must mm-hmm. have grown up to coexist with a lot of other native critters yeah or it's organisms.
1: a key as dr doug tell me says it's a keystone species that being one which is a host for all kinds of other things And the, the galls are a fun one because at this time of year we're recording this show in the summer I, every week someone walks in with a, what the heck is this thing on the leaf of my oak tree? I get to, oh, that's a gall. Let me explain all about that. That's a little wasp that creates the, that causes the gall to form around it. Some of them are star shaped. Some of them look like perfect little Hershey's kisses. My favorite of all are the oak jumping galls, which oh, grow yes. on certain, certain oak trees. And there's a bunch of them down by the, uh, the cemetery, which is not far from my garden center. And so on the ground, on the sidewalk underneath those are what look like hopping seeds. They, they call them jumping oak. Calls. This one detaches from the leaf, falls to the ground. The larva is in there trying to get out. And so the thing goes bouncing up and down, which literally freaks people out. And uh, they're all harmless. I once went to a seminar where they enumerated the hundred plus organisms that were known to live on or around or with or cohabit with valley oak. It's an extremely important species in that regard, ranging from things you can think of, like squirrels, to things you wouldn't think of like the particular mycorrhiza that live on the roots of that particular species. So it's, it's a, a very important species. And obviously we'd like to get more of them planted where they are appropriate. And I want to quickly address one myth about them. People think you have to plant them where they won't be irrigated because that's where they would naturally grow. That's not true. What you don't want to do is bring in irrigation around an established old valley oak. You will kill it just guarantee you can find lots of resources online for what to plant under the valley oak that you inherited from history when you bought your house and happened to have one on the property. But you got to be really careful about landscaping around an existing established valley oak. You can plant a valley oak right in your lawn if you want to, and it'll be fine. It'll actually grow faster. It'll grow three feet a year instead of a foot a year. I have one that's irrigated, one that is not irrigated. The irrigated one grows two to three feet a year, the unirrigated one plugging along at about a foot a year. Both healthy trees Both fine, but don't change the irrigation around an established mature oak. You can, however, put a valley oak into your landscape if you have room for it.
0: And if you have a valley oak in your lawn that you grew up from a seed, or the jay planted in it grew up from a seed, um, and then you decide to take out your lawn and you stop watering. Now, will you kill that oak because it's gone from lots of water to little? I know going from little to a lot will kill it, but...
1: You, you could stress it if it always had been irrigated, you would want to, as with any tree, and this is a really important conversation, honestly, as with any tree that's been living with a particular type of irrigation, if you suddenly reduce that irrigation drastically, significant percentage of the root system was in the irrigated zone, will no longer be getting water, you're gonna stress that tree. You need to adjust it to reduced irrigation. Lots and lots and lots of people during the two major droughts we had in the last decade decided to take out their front lawn. Okay, great, some of them did it just by turning off the water that was also great kills the front lawn no problem kill the trees they, they did in many cases virtually kill trees and some species couldn't take it i would think a valley oak would probably come through okay but you could certainly wean it a little more effectively than just cold turkey no more water uh you have to plan for irrigating the woody plants if you take out your lawn They don't need nearly as much of water as the lawn needs, nearly as frequently. No, I mean, you can deep water them once a month and they'd probably be fine, but you should adapt them to the different watering regimen that you've decided to implement. Randomly suddenly taking away a major water source can be a big problem, even for something like a valley oak that's been planted in a lawn. There are species that can take this process better than others, and it certainly is in that category, but I hate to see anything done cold turkey in the middle of the summer like that. Mm -hmm.
0: Cold turkey, huh? (laughs)
1: <laughs> They're addicted to water. <laughs> turkeys.
0: That's a, that's a good topic. Um, there's oaks, a thing right? <laughs> called a turkey oak. What's a turkey oak, and why is it called turkey oak?
1: Uh, I can't remember why it's called turkey oak, but uh, is it from Turkey or is it from the East Coast? We'd have to look that one up. I don't want to give out wrong information without the, you know, without telling. With I thought Canadian. it was because
0: the turkeys were. Except we didn't used to have turkey, and you said oaks had aren't squirrels neither, in them, and the under on them. Them. No squirrels. Under them. Under them. them. Yeah, Yeah. but you had squirrels in the tree, and they weren't here then.
1: That would be a very acrobatic ground squirrel if it's up in the tree. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We do now. We do now have them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. We got those just.
1: Just briefly about oaks. I, I really like oaks, and they're wonderful trees for this area. And there's a lot to choose from. And there are East Coast oaks, and there's West Coast oaks, and oaks from other parts of the world. One of the world's largest oak collections, in fact, is at the UC Davis Arboretum. and They're a very suitable species for this area. Uh, bear in mind the different sizes. I think that's really the key thing we're getting at here. And the other thing is, whenever I write an article touting the benefits of oaks, someone walks in and says, Don, you got to tell them about the acorn thing. <laughs> Oh, you mean the mass production of acorns? It happens about every 10 years. Yes. All right. So let's talk about that very briefly. About every eight or 10 years. We don't know why. This is true of some plants. They produce prodigious amounts of acorns. I mean, like as one who lives out in winters under a massive old oak tree said, two to three inches deep. On the ground around the tree of a mulch of acorns, which would be cool up to a point, except that, as noted, we have squirrels, both ground squirrels, and now we have tree squirrels as well. And in fact, we have a native tree squirrel; it's just not native in town. Typically, they love those acorns. They just think they're wonderful. They're a great food source. They come in like crazy, as do rats and other things. And they take them, and they sort of the jays and the mockingbirds and whatnot, and they take them off. And they bury them. And so that's the first thing: is the acorns, which she said you just rake up and put in buckets and throw them away. And then for the next five years, you're pulling out seedlings everywhere. So oaks reseed; that can be okay if you have room for seedlings. Otherwise, just be aware of that minor but notable issue.
0: Are oaks the only one that do that mass production of seed? No, or-
1: beech. Uh, here, uh, beech trees do it, I'm told. Beech trees, uh, which are w- widely grown in Pacific Northwest, back east. It's much a higher water need tree. Uh, they do the same thing where you get, and they, by the way, their nuts are also edible, just for the record. So that's cool if you happen to live on acorns or happen to live on beech nuts, but, um, uh, it's a lot to deal with all at once.
0: Mm-hmm. Is this, this have anything to do with the alternate bearing that some of the fruit trees do?
1: they don't know why they do this intermittently Uh, whether you know i've seen lots of speculation Uh, same thing like bamboo flowers on certain cycles as well the exact trigger is not not really known uh, but it just happens every eight to ten years it's called mast production m-a-s-t production of seeds and it's notable particularly in oaks and beech trees
0: m-a-s-t not m-a-s-s-e-d correct why
1: i don't know (laughs) Oh, I love these conversations. Don't call. Well, with bamboo, we call it it gregarious flowering because certain bamboo species do this every 30, 60, 90, 120 years, something roughly on that cycle, and then they die. So in the case of bamboo, it's actually really important that plant, all of them, all of that species, all around the world, when they start flowering, they die. Not the case with oaks and beech trees. That's a whole separate show we'll do about bamboo sometime.
0: Well, what about these um century plants now i I've, I've got
1: yeah century plants are another example it, it flowers and it seeds it flowers and that plant dies at that point
0: all of the okay so here was a, a plant it flowered it seeded it died and uh, all these little pups were taken and spread around the neighborhood and now everybody's got a century plant are <laughs> all of those going to be flowering at the same time
1: roughly yeah because yeah, they came right. from
0: the same parent
1: yeah, apparently that cohort will bloom 25, 30 years down the road and do the same thing. Wow. And then the, then that particular species, they do die. Not all agaves do that.
0: Is agave ever a tree?
1: I don't think we would ever call a succulent plant that has a basal crown a tree. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, I did now talk if you are
0: out in the desert and it was the only big thing around.
1: I did talk about Bamboo. Okay, now is bamboo a tree? My dad would it's promptly launch into the song about bamboo tree, under the bamboo tree. It's a grass that is as big and woody as a tree in some cases. Uh, there are bamboo species that get 50 to 100 feet tall. There's one that's gotten to 160 feet tall, which has combs that are 6 to 10 inches in diameter, and they're woody. So by almost every definition, it's a tree. Height, woodiness, you know, characteristics of a tree. But it's a gem. giant. It's a giant, well, not really, but again, we've acknowledged that that's not a characteristic that's consistent either. And so you could call the big timber bamboos is what they're called. Timber bamboos, trees, a bamboo tree, um, palms, palms are monocots, palms are monocots like a grass, and uh, we call them trees. Many of them are Joshua single. Joshua tree. Many of them are single trunk, but most, many palms are also multi-trunk. So it gets into this definitional thing. It really has to do with how they're used.
0: What's a Joshua tree.
1: Um, a cactus,
0: a succulent of some sort, isn't it? Never mind.
1: I can't remember exactly. Neither
0: what, of us lived in the desert.
1: So. Oh I live close enough, I should know. Um it's a uh, uh I'm trying to remember which genus of, of plants it is. Um it's okay. There, it's a yucca, thank it. you. There you go. It's a yucca, yucca, yucca brevifolia. Yucca. Yuccas. Now yuccas, like agaves, are deserty-looking plants with very dramatic foliage, and yuccas can get big enough to be considered trees.
0: Let's talk about my favorite tree, redwoods.
1: Okay, now, sad. That's a red, sad conversation.
0: Yeah. Well, there are redwoods, and then there are redwoods. What kinds of redwoods do we have? We have the the big ones and big ones are the little ones and the ones that lose the leaves. Okay.
1: None of them are little. Let's start with that. None of them are little. There's coast redwood and the big tree. Coast redwood is Sequoia Sempervirens, which is all this planet all over California interior down by Yosemite. There is Sequoia dendron giganteum. The, uh, the, the big tree it's called, or usually just called Sequoia giant Sequoia. Interesting. It's an interior tree. It's a relic population, um, historically, prehistorically, I guess you could say, um, they are not grown successfully outside of that area anywhere in California. You plant the coat, the interior redwoods, sequoia dendron giganteum, nursery them, which I wish they wouldn't. They grow for 10 to 12 years and then they get bacterial canker disease and they die. I've never seen one live more than 10 or 15 years in Davis, Woodland, Sacramento, anywhere, honestly, in California, except down where they grow naturally. Coast redwood, which is native to the mist fog zone of California, sunset zone 17. If you want to look on the, on the sunset garden zones, fog every morning, dripping off the needles, very important part of its irrigation cycle. That's the redwood that's planted all over California in, even in the valley and has been planted in the valley since the 1930s and 40s when the, the redwood grove, I believe was planted at the Arboretum. It needs moisture. The sequoia dendron giganteum, being interior, it's a rainier climate than here, but it has periods without moisture. So at least it would, in theory, be more drought tolerant, the interior redwood would. But that disease problem just completely keeps it out of consideration. Don't even think about planting sequoia dendron giganteum, unless you happen to live in Europe. In the 19th century, there was a big fad. This tree was discovered, and it's the biggest, massive, most massive tree in the world is the sequoia dendron, General Sherman tree. Which, which one is it? Is that the one? Anyway, a giant tree, massive tree. And they were planted in Ireland, and Austria, and places like that because there was a fad for planting these giant trees from America. One of my employees went to Austria and sent me a picture of a sequoia dendron giganteum 150 years old in Vienna with snow on it and uh, doing just Fabulously there. The disease problem we get here does not apparently hit them there. But the one that you have and the what that we all sold heavily in the nursery industry is planted all over Davis. It's about seven to 10% of our urban forest canopy is the coast redwood, Sequoia sempervirens. It's a great choice as long as it gets some irrigation consistently through its whole life. And during the droughts, the two major droughts we've experienced in the last decade, Coast Redwoods have been some of the most adversely affected trees in our whole urban forest all over the valley. Trees that got consistent irrigation through the drought came through okay. Mm -hmm. Trees that got water cut back because people changed their irrigation patterns, dropped a lot of needles, yellowed badly, got dieback from the branches, dieback from the tip. Then they got hit by disease and many of them are coming out. And we are probably going to lose hundreds if not thousands of Coast Redwoods around the Davis area over the next five to ten years, above, the one, above and beyond the ones we've already lost that have already been taken out because of the drought stress compounded by all these other factors, the lack of irrigation continuing. They're just going to go, and we're going to have to replace those. That's a significant percentage of our urban canopy. So if you're looking for a tree and the rec- nursery owner recommends a Coast Redwood, it needs to go in a place where it will always be irrigated. Or else 20, 30, 40 years down the road, you'll have a very big tree. They're very fast growing, which will then become a liability, unfortunately.
0: When you say it's always going to be irrigated, are they the kind of tree that could be riparian, could be next to a creek?
1: In theory, sure. As long as there's a water source nearby, yeah.
0: So it it doesn't, I would think that if it was on a slope, it would fall over.
1: They typically don't, thank goodness. They just start b- dropping branches. I think you've had some experience with that. Typically, they're not the kind of tree that that falls over. However, we also had a major wind event here in Davis in January of 2023. And the trees that were primarily knocked over, it wasn't Coast Redwood specifically, it was evergreen trees that were freestanding in turf areas were the mm-hmm. ones that blew over, that acted like a sail when that 70-mile-an-hour wind hit Davis and took down 100 trees in the Arboretum, 100 or more around town, 1,000 or more in Sacramento, all in one windstorm. And it was the trees that were freestanding evergreens hit by the force of that and saturated soil. Those are the ones that went over. It wasn't coast redwoods per se, specifically, but they were among the ones that were hit.
0: So that's two of the redwood species. What about the third one, the metasequoia?
1: Well, that's not... Uh, closely related, but metasequoia glyptostroboides, which is one of my favorite botanical names. Metasequoia glyptostroboides, meta means like sequoia, coast redwood. Metasequoia means like coast redwood. It's a unique tree. I have several of them down my driveway and, um, there's some in the arboretum planted in turf areas. This is a tree that will never tolerate drought, never tolerate drought. It is a, what's, what makes it unique and the reason I have it is it's a deciduous conifer.
0: Yeah, it people plant it and then they They then it loses all its leaves, and they think they've killed it, and they just take it out.
1: (laughs) Well, hopefully they don't take it out until they have a chance to talk to the nursery where they bought it. There are four deciduous gymnosperms, three of which are conifers, and I have all of them. Actually, there's five. I have four of the five, and uh, these are a fun group of plants to test your, you know, your, your botany knowledge. Metasequoia glyptostroboides, the dawn redwood from China, which was discovered in the 19th century and was widely planted in the United States, especially in higher rainfall areas like uh, like New England and Mid Atlantic states. It's very cold and hardy, and they do well here as long as they're in turf. I mean, they, that's, it's that simple. The other is a ginkgo is a gymnosperm that's deciduous. Uh, taxodium, the bald cypress, is another conifer that's deciduous. Larch is the other one that is deciduous, and I happen to have all three of those, actually all four of them, including the ginkgo. The metasequoias need a lot of water. That uh, We've had them on our farm for 35 years. I have, They have their own drip line. I make sure they get irrigated basically with my maples. They need that kind of watering. They, they stress badly if they don't get irrigated and they tend to die back, unfortunately. Same thing with the bald cypress. It's a beautiful, very graceful tree. You know, if you've been down in the south, I fell in love with them when we traveled to Georgia and we saw them growing and standing in water down there. And I thought, well, we don't have standing water, but we'll give it plenty of water where I'll plant it right in my rose garden. It does great. It's a beautiful tree, but it never will be drought tolerant. So these are trees that you need to cite where you expect best, your best guess will always be irrigated throughout the life of that tree. And that's a challenging guess, because things have changed. Back in the 40s and 50s, trees were planted all over Davis on the assumption that front lawns would always be there. That was a reasonable assumption back then. Front lawns would always be there, would always be irrigated. You know that when you and I moved here, there was no water meters on the houses here. Yeah. It was illegal to put water meters on houses in Sacramento. They couldn't, they had to change the city charter to meter the houses there, uh, because it was just assumed, we're well, the, at the confluence of the Sacramento and American rivers. We have plenty of groundwater everyone will always have a front lawn. That was an assumption in the 1940s and 50s. It started to fall apart in the 70s with that first big drought, and boy, has it fallen apart in the last 10 years. A lot of front yards are not lawns. And so that changes the choices. It doesn't eliminate, it changes the choices of trees that we should put in.
0: I'm thinking about the trees that I've planted over the years now, When I had a rental house, I planted a whole lot of stuff, but nothing bigger than the bush. Well, that's actually, that's not true. I did plant one of those pistache trees. Mm -hmm. Tell me about pistache trees.
1: Chinese pistache has been planted here. Uh, Actually, there's some non-native historical trees that people um, become familiar with because they're an important part of our urban canopy. Chinese pistache, pistachia, pistachia. Chinensis is, uh, been successfully grown here since the early 1900s. And there's lots of very big old specimens around Woodland and Davis in particular. Uh, they were all grown from seed in those days. So you had, and it's a dioecious tree, which means you have male and female separate trees. So if you got the, the female tree, you happen to get a lot of red berries happens to bring a lot of birds and there's a lot of litter under those trees, so that's considered somewhat undesirable if you happen to live in town. I think it's great, but if you live in town, kind of messy. Um, The male trees tend to have better fall color, and one of the real highlights of the Chinese pistache is the fall color. It is the only tree here, widely planted in the Davis, Woodland, Sacramento area, that gives consistent really spectacular fall color in large numbers. So if you're seeing really pretty fall color as you drive around in November here in Davis, it's almost surely the Chinese pistachios providing that.
0: What about the ginkgo that always has a beautiful brilliant yellow
1: Okay, but there's not that many of them by comparison. So yes, they are. They're also another good choice for fall color of, of the Davis canopy. The reason I know these numbers is a survey has been done uh, by a consultant for the city of Davis, which Tree Davis is also working with. This information we know roughly what percentage our, of our canopy is certain trees, and it's about ten percent of our tree canopy is Chinese pistache. That's a pretty large percentage for one species. It's one of the highest percentages. Uh, about twenty thirty years ago, some of the growers found male a male cultivar that was selected. It's called Keith Davy, selected for reliable bright red fall color. And the fact that it's male. So you don't get the fruit. So you don't have the litter and you don't have the birds and all that kind of stuff that has to be grafted. so it's grafted onto a root stock. And if you go to my nursery or any garden center locally, pretty high likelihood, you're just going to get Keith Davy now because we were selling you something with those features, no litter, beautiful fall color that we can tell you will be beautiful fall color. Prior to that, we in the nursery business went through this little song and dance every fall of people coming in, trying to go through our Chinese pistachio trees and select them for their fall color. Oh, that one's purple. That one's orange. That one's yellow. They'd only want the red one. You know, they would, they would want to select them that way. Now I can say this one's red. I can promise it. <laughs> you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to come in and wait for them to turn color. And also you don't have that fruit litter. Um, so as you're driving around, you'll see some trees that are spectacular red. and You don't notice there's none of the little red berries on them. That's very likely. Teeth Davy, Chinese pistache, which has become the dominant cultivar of that particular species. Chinese pistache are extremely drought tolerant. I have them on my farm growing along the freeway where I have never irrigated them. I also have trees that I've carefully planted in my own irrigated area doing equally well. It's a very, very adaptable species. Really, the only problem we have with Chinese pistache, one of the reasons is it may not end up on our city's recommended tree list for the next few years. There are so many of them we get concerned when there's too much of one species that if some disease problem happens to come along or pest problem has happens to come along that specifically attacks Chinese pistache. That's the history of urban forestry right there. A new pest that attacks one species and either harms them or makes them a nuisance or Kills them. And those are, those are tragic problems when they happen. We'd hate to lose 10% of our canopy, but if it's only 10%, that's better than cities where it was elms and it was a hundred percent. So we try to get diversity out there. That's really the only issue with Chinese pistache. And occasionally a tree will get verticillium wilt and die, which is sad when it happens, but it's rare enough that I still can recommend them highly. Uh, and they're beautiful fall color, easy to care for and can be trained up high so you can have a garden underneath them. They're a nice classic high canopy tree for neighborhoods and backyards in Davis.
0: And if folks in Davis want to see what that pistache with the berries looks like, the female trees, which I think are beautiful. Mm -hmm. If you go to the senior center and you go to the parking lot that is off of B street, um, just right in there, B and seventh. And you go that row of trees is right next to the building. There Mm -hmm. is female pistache and in the winter time you can tell by the way when fall comes because all of a sudden the uh yellow rumped warblers that come Mm -hmm. and visit us for the winter show up and they just go crazy for those berries and the berries are beautiful they're a teal color that then Turns color into red, and the the clusters are some are some are teal when some are red' it's, it's beautiful if you take if you do photography it is a wonderful tree to go and take pictures of because it's just gorgeous
1: so what I did on my property when I wanted to make a grove of pistache trees many years ago, and I wanted them for fall color, but I didn't care if they were male or female, was I bought from one of my wholesale suppliers a flat of seedlings the kind of thing a wholesaler would then plant up into one or five gallon. I took that flat and I left it out and let it expose to cold in the fall and waited for the seedlings to turn color. I took all the ones that didn't have nice color and threw them away. (laughs) I took the ones that did have nice color and planted six with spectacular color out into a grove on my property. That was 20 plus years ago, half are female, half are male Um, They all have really nice fall color, but a couple of them are spectacular. But it does show the variation you get when you grow them from seed. And two of them set so many berries that it's actually a feature of the plant. They're beautiful when they have those berries on them, but I wouldn't want it over a patio or a spa or even a lawn in most situations. And they are filled with what I have seen is cedar waxwings will move in and just gorge themselves (laughs) on them. So it's great for bringing birds in in the wintertime. And those berries are still hanging on there after all the others have lost their leaves. So it really is a feature, but I can tell you it wouldn't be a selling feature from a retail standpoint. (laughs) Most people don't want those kind of berries. Interesting fact about Chinese pistachio. You would think a tree that's been planted for over 100 years in this area where each female tree produces thousands of fruit and seed would be naturalized everywhere. You would think we would have hundreds of seedlings coming up near every tree. They barely reseed. They do reseed. On my farm, I have three or four seedlings that have come up that I've left. Three or four out of years and years of seed load. There's a little insect that likes to eat The berries of Chinese pistache. And nearly 100% of the berries of Chinese pistache on the female trees are destroyed by this little insect that's feeding from inside the seed. In fact, the ones that turn red are infested. The teal blue ones are not infested. And if you watch, they're all red by the end of the season. And then the birds come along and eat them. So it is not a tree that has anywhere near receded as much as you might expect from something with that kind of fruit load. Interesting, strange little fact about Chinese pistache.
0: So you mean when the birds grab a teal-colored berry, they get a, they get a Chinese pistache seed, and when they get a red one, they get a bonus of a little more protein? Yeah.
1: Yep. Oh. <laughs> <So> <laughs> there's, also an, uh, there's also another pistache in the area here and there, pistachia atlantica, the Atlas pistache, which to you and I looks exactly like a Chinese pistache. One of them, just for botanists out there, the leaves are odd pinnate. The other species, the leaves are even pinnate. You'll have to look it up because I can't remember which is which. But the, the, the atlas pistache has a couple drawbacks. It doesn't turn color at all in the fall. It just drops its leaves. It's a certain sort of yellowish green and drop. It sets copious amounts of berries that are all teal blue. So if you see a pistache with all teal blue berries, that's pistachia atlantica. It reseeds quite a bit. It could become invasive. It will not be on our recommended tree list because of its invasive potential. But it was used as a rootstock for the Keith Davy pistache and has sometimes been planted or sold around the area. There's some of them near the library, for example, on 14th Street. And if you're looking at them in the fall and winter and they have that blueberry, that's Pistachia atlantica. You can now impress your friends by knowing the different species of the genus Pistachia. The third member of that genus is pistachio nuts, which are also widely grown in the area as a crop, but they're totally different looking.
0: So the the little insect that infests the pistache berries, mm-hmm. some red, did that come with the tree from China? Or is Probably. that something from from the Americas that just found this tree and went Oh, goody,
1: I believe it's an imported pest on an imported tree. But that's an important question. We have we we sometimes bring in trees and plant them widely and everything goes along fine. And then a pest that is on that tree where the tree came from comes in and has no natural predators as it would back in its native habitat. And all of a sudden we have a problem and a really good example of that. Chinese hackberry, Celtus sinensis, which is a significant percentage of our canopy here. Seven or eight percent of the trees in Davis are Chinese hackberry. It was chosen of the hackberries because of the denser, more attractive canopy and the fact that it made a nicer shade tree in many ways than the common hackberry or the European hackberry unfortunately, about 15 years ago, the Asian woolly hackberry aphid followed along behind these hackberries that had been planted so widely in California for, I don't know, 50 or 60 years prior to that, and quickly within a year of it showing up in the Sacramento Valley, every Chinese hackberry tree I looked at was infested with this winged aphid. It's winged throughout its entire life cycle, and they were dripping sticky stuff underneath the trees. It's like living with a fine mist of maple syrup on your yard every single day. And Well, yeah, wash is off. Uh, most people don't want to do that. So we quickly had to do some research and find out what was a, a pest management strategy for this other than the one that most people wanted to adopt, which was cut the tree down. <laughs> so we, we looked up what systemics you could use when it was safe to use them, how to use them. And a lot of people, unfortunately, who have Chinese hackberries, big, wonderful shade trees in their yards, especially parts of South Davis, Willow Bank, if you're listening there, that's one of your dominant species had to deal with this pest every year. And it came, it followed this the host plant. It doesn't attack common hackberry. It doesn't attack European hackberry. But unfortunately, the Chinese hackberry had been the most widely planted. Very host-specific, a good example of the pest following the host.
0: Well, Don... This has been fun talking about these trees and we only have another five minutes or so. Mm-hmm. I was wondering on your property, I know you're out in the country and you can plant things that I couldn't plant here in town. What tree do you have that perhaps we don't that you would really like to tell us about? Something that's, I don't know, unusual or doing I really well? Do,
1: well, I have actually about a hundred interesting trees, but the one that really has impressed me and one that I don't want you all to plant, but it's a wonderful tree in its place. In 2005, a young man who was living here, a friend of my son and I planted a Fremont cottonwood, our native cottonwood, populus Fremontii. If you know about cottonwoods, you know, they're not a residential tree, but that's great tree for a farm. 2005. So what is that? 17 years ago. I measured it off using a a shadow casting uh, technique that you learn when you take forestry classes. That tree is 55 feet tall and about 30 feet across. It has spectacular yellow fall color. You can't even hear the freeway when the wind is blowing through the cottonwood tree. I've given it an 80 foot diameter circle because I know its roots can go out that far, but it is a monumental example of one of our native species of trees, Populus fremontia, the, the Fremont cottonwood. So I love it, and I've taken cuttings for people who live in rural areas, but I would never sell a cottonwood to anybody in town because of the aggressive roots and the fact that they're short-lived and a bunch of other things. And in point of fact, 30 feet from the trunk, the first root sucker has popped up 17 years later, and I'm looking at it and going, okay, this is my moment to decide. Am I going to have one cottonwood or a thicket of cottonwoods? But it's an amazingly you
0: decide.
1: I've left it for now. I have, I consider I've given myself one year to make this final decision on this tree, but it's a beautiful tree. And it's a case where I had a place for a tree that I could give its full potential. I have weeping willows on my property, three of them. Most people, I would never sell a weeping willow, but I had a place. We all love them. Everybody who lives here loves weeping willows. So we've planted them where they have at least a 40 foot diameter for each tree and nothing nearby that the roots will be a problem for. But what I really have that personal personally matters to me, is the ring of oak species that I've been planting since I moved here in 1985. 10 different species of oaks making a circle around my residential part of the farm, and each of these is potentially going to be a 60 to 100 foot tree with age. Some of them are already 30 to 40 feet tall. I've given each one enough room. I've given them enough room to spread. Of those, the most beautiful one that I think more people should know about is Quercus shumardi, the shumardi red oak. 40-foot spread since it's been planted in 1992, easily 40-foot height, big shiny leaves, massive trunk, three-foot diameter in that time already, and going to be a monumental tree at some point. And that is an oak that'll fit in the lawn or not. It's reasonably drought-tolerant. It's a great big spreading tree that I think should be used more.
0: Are you going to put it in any parks? Are there any in Davis that I can go look at?
1: Um, It looks like the other red oaks that are planted, we've been using a related one in the tree planting that Tree Davis did down Russell Boulevard. We've been using the Texas version, Quercus um, canbi, the Texas red oak, and it's right at the intersection of Russell and Lake. There are two of them planted there, two years old, already hitting about eight to 10 feet, shiny leaves. You can't miss them now. They're going to be spectacular trees there. They look very much like the Schumardi Oak. And I think that group of oaks are really good ones to consider in landscapes where there might or might not be irrigation. They can kind of go either way. And that's an important consideration in a situation like that.
0: Thank you, Don Shore, for being my guest today. I really appreciate your, oh, chatting with me, I guess we call it. And we'll do it again. We'll, when, when you have more about your tree program, come on again and we'll do another show. But for there now,
1: you.
0: you've been listening to KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California. My name is Lois Richter and the program is That's Life.